this time we have the opportunity to train the mind. And this time is something of incredible value for us. Because we look at the nature of the mind, what is it like? The mind has been chasing after moods and sense impressions ever since we were born. Having mentality, materiality, whenever we experience sense contact, there Vedana feeling tone arises and craving and attachment arise following that. This is something I explained before. And the feeling of self arises right there. And this is normal for it to be like this. And for those that have parami, spiritual virtue, even at the age of seven years old, they're able to understand this. Like Lady Visaka, she realized stream entry at the age of seven. And why was this able to happen? It's because she had built her parami, her spiritual virtues, for a long time already. Since the time of multiple Buddhas, since the time of Kakusandasa Buddha, Konagamana Buddha, Kasapa Buddha, these past Buddhas, she was the foremost female lay supporter of these Buddhas. And so therefore we don't have to doubt that she was able to realize stream entry at the age of seven, because she had practiced already. We see that this merit that's been done in the past is a blessing in one's life. So for ourselves, we have faith to practice in this lifetime, whether you're a lay person or a monastic, you have this past conditioning, this past causes. It's not just from this one lifetime, just not, not only from this present lifetime. Because there are many individuals not interested in the Buddha's teachings, not interested in the Buddha's asana. Then there are some, or there are many who have belief in the Buddha's asana, have faith, respect the Buddha, have firm belief in the Buddha, but they don't use wisdom. And this is still meritorious, this is still a type of goodness. But for one who actually comes to put the teachings into practice as well, they have to have mindfulness and wisdom. In the beginning, one sees the quality of dukkha, of suffering. This is nature that we all experience suffering. And once we suffer, we feel that we seek escape from that suffering. But typically the way that beings seek escape from suffering just gives rise to even more suffering. And that suffering keeps getting uh, stored away and built up in the heart. And some people, this leads them to kill themselves. And there are many people who do this. But for those who have spiritual virtues built already, even if they suffer a lot, they can still come to the path of practice that the Buddha taught. Just like the disciples of the past, the savakas, for instance, some female disciples in the time of the Buddha, they lost loved ones, they lost their mindfulness due to the suffering of losing their loved ones. But then they were able to meet with the Buddha, and the Buddha taught them with the great wisdom of a Buddha, and their mind was able to come back to them, and they were able to 
thereupon practice to realize full awakening, arahantship. And so this we recollect that merit done in the past. This is merit that's been done in the past. So all of you, whether monks or novices, monastics, male laity, female laity, you're interested in the Dhamma in this lifetime. So this is past merit that you've done in past lives. This is a great blessing in your life. So having been born into this life, all of you, may you not be heedless, not to be lost in sensuality. Because we see that some people, they want to be close to the Buddha Sasana, but they're far away. Or they may come close, but they're actually far. Because they're physically close, but they don't chant, they don't meditate. There are many people like this. There are some people who have built parmi in the past, and then when it comes time, even if they haven't been born into a Buddhist uh, culture or society, uh, faith arises, and the interest in Dhamma practice arises. And then they seek out the method of practice, the method of Dhamma practice. So in the beginning, one studies the text, studies and learns, and one's able to meet with a great teacher. And having met with a great teacher, then one puts those teachings into practice, and one puts down what one has studied first. When I met Venerable Ajahn Chah, he said to put all the books in the cabinet and to lock them in there, not to open it again. As if one reads a book, one can feel this contentedness or fullness of heart, and one can get stuck in that feeling. But Venerable Ajahn Chah taught that one should watch the heart, watch the mind. And I practiced following this instruction. Whatever Venerable Ajahn Chah taught, that I would do. And after about a month of this, the mind felt not bright anymore, started to get uh, dark or hazy like a pond covered over with water plants. When it's covered over with plants, then one can't see the water. It was like that, it was dark. Without uh, reading the books, then I didn't feel at ease. In the beginning, it's like this. But then I would listen to the Dhamma talks of Venerable Ajahn Chah, and I'd feel rapture, happiness, and fullness in my mind, the mind following the flow of the Dhamma. I felt close to the Dhamma, felt I could see the Dhamma. This is the spiritual virtues of Venerable Ajahn Chah, who was spreading loving-kindness as he was teaching Dhamma. I felt that I could see the light of the path to Nibbana. But then after the Dhamma talk, about 15 days would pass or so, and the mind would start to lose energy the strength of mindfulness and wisdom would decrease. Mindfulness became less firm. The mind started to be dark and couldn't see the way anymore. In the beginning, it has to be like this. Even if we've seen already, we've met with the Dhamma to a degree already, met with this path, we've seen clearly already, but then we walk further along, and then sometimes it's like this. 
then when we come to listen to the Dhamma again, the mind can feel brightness arise, freshness arise. This is the cultivation of parami. And so we have this faith already, this strength of faith and effort. So we cultivate mindfulness. These are called the five powers, five faculties, that which are in charge or at the head. So this faith is a power, it's a faculty. And for instance, if one hasn't done generosity in the past, then it's difficult to do generosity. But if one has done generosity, then one has this strength and energy. Just like many practitioners here have the strength and energy to do generosity, the energy to do acts of merit and goodness. Even if one only has a little bit, then they give that much. It can be one baht or a hundred baht. Whether it's a lot or a little, one has the faith to help and to give, to aid the needy in society. For instance, like building a school, helping those in need, releasing animals that are due to be slaughtered, building uh, hospitals or monasteries. So we see faith is the leader here. It's a power. It's an important type of strength and energy. And then we have the strength to strive and make effort in the doing of merit and goodness. But those who have the faith to undertake the precepts to practice virtue are even less than those who do generosity. For the monastics and lady here, we have this quality of faith that is ready in the doing of generosity and the caring of virtue as well. For the monastic sangha, having ordained in the Buddha-sasana, how do they do merit and goodness? Because the monastics rely on the lady in order to live, relying on the uh, material requisites. And so the merit that the monastics do is that of giving and sacrificing. It's a merit in the mind, for instance, of abandoning greed abandoning, uh, wanting, something we do when we come to ordain. Because when one ordains, one doesn't seek or want outer wealth, but one wants inner wealth. And one uses the, the requisites that the lady have offered with faith and loving kindness. One relies on the Buddha, the founder of the Buddha Sasana, and one receives the Dhamma inheritance from the Buddha. And this enables the Sangha to live. So we have faith like this. We have energy to do, to practice virtue, whether the five or eight precepts. You do the five precepts already. Doing the eight precepts is more difficult. For instance, we can undertake the eight precepts on the Lunar Observance Day and the day before the Lunar Observance Day as well. Could be three days in a row or in a given month, we do this at least once. This is a foundation for our mind. It's like building a large building. It needs a strong and stable foundation. And so this quality of virtue is our stable foundation. In this life and the next, it helps us to not have obstacles or difficulties, but to have the opportunity to practice and not to suffer too much. Because if we suffer too much, then 
it'll be difficult to have mindfulness and wisdom. So we practice to practice uh, generosity and virtue to see suffering clearly. Because we see that these qualities of greed, aversion, and delusion are in the heart, and that is suffering. We have these moods and sense impressions that arise right at the heart, and these cause the heart to waver, to give rise to greed and wanting, ill will, aversion, uh, delusion, and ignorance. Then one thinks to harm or hurt, to have ill will, to have uh, greed. So we need to cultivate right view and right intention. Having right view, we see, we understand the suffering, its cause, its cessation, and the path to that cessation. And having this, then we have effort not to have ill will, not to hurt or harm, not to follow greed, not to follow the way of sensual indulgence, not to follow the way of self-mortification, but to practice the way of peace, not to do these two extreme paths, to practice the Dhamma. Because those who practice the Dhamma train their minds not to just let the mind go and follow after moods and sense impressions, but one cares for the mind. And this enables one to see the value of the mind. And the mind is the highest, it's supreme. All things come, reach success in the mind. The value of the mind is truly incredible. And so therefore we practice to care for it well. For instance, if we have a lot of material wealth, we may think, well, where should we store it that's safe? Where it won't get stolen, where it won't get damaged or destroyed, where it won't get lost. So we feel like we really want to care for that wealth well. And if we have something that's very expensive, then we try to care for it well, look after it carefully. And this uh, concern, looking after material wealth like this, it's a type of suffering. And then if that valuable item gets lost or broken, then suffering arises right there. So we need to have care with this, we need to be careful. Venerable Ajahn Chah gave an example there was one senior monk who received an expensive uh, Chinese teacup and he tried to care for it very well and suffered about this, had a mind of suffering. And one day a young novice broke that expensive teacup and he said, oh, I'm free from suffering now. Because if he had to care for that expensive cup because it was so valuable, and this was suffering. So not having it, then uh, he felt relieved of that burden. So having wealth is a type of suffering. And if we don't have any material wealth, then we'll suffer even more than that. So we have to take a look at the mind and see, is the mind following after clinging, following after greed and aversion? This is the wrong way. We need to have mindfulness to look after and care for the mind, the mind which is of great value. So we come to train the mind, the mind that's agitated and troubled. Because if we look at it in truth, the mind is not troubled. 
the mind is a natural element whose nature is to know it's not actually agitated. But these experiences uh, enter the mind and then the mind feels agitated because it's lost in them. The mind is mixed with these experiences. But in truth, the mind is not agitated. If the mind was truly agitated, then this would be a unfixable situation because the mind itself would be agitation. But it's not like this. The mind is not agitated or troubled. Its nature is clear. But this agitation, this delusion or ignorance, it covers over and controls the mind. The power of that ignorance holds the mind under its sway. And so the mind proliferates according to the power of that ignorance, which is what give, gives rise to agitation and feeling troubled. So we think one is troubled today, troubled next month, next year, next lifetime. If we don't practice, it's like this. It's just the sense of self, the sense of me, mine, you and yours arising all the time. It just doesn't stop. So we practice to know clearly that the mind is one thing, moods and sense impressions are another. They're not the same thing. They're not one. The mind, we practice to separate and bring it above the sense impressions. Is this greed, aversion, and delusion? They're one type of sense impression. Thinking and proliferation is another type of sense impression. All dhammas are uh, sense impressions. So we see, for instance, when we close our eyes, we're not hearing any sounds, we're not smelling anything, we're not tasting anything, we're just sitting still. But the mind is still thinking and proliferating. And this is even in a quiet place. So this is a type of aramana or sense impression through the mind. And so this is the, yeah, the Dhamma Aramana arising right there in the mind. And so when these sense impressions arise, whether a sight, sound, taste, smell, touch, or mind object, then knowing arises along with the experience of these sense impressions. So knowing these sense impressions already, what is it like or what happens? The mind without mindfulness will become lost in them, will cling to them, of liking or disliking for them. And these sense impressions arise and cease, and liking and disliking arise. It's like we can take the example of someone who's sick or has a problem with one's brain, for instance, uh, dementia or Parkinson's. And someone in that situation, sometimes they're able to remember things, but sometimes it's unpleasant or bad memories, these memories that are deeply embedded in the mind. Sometimes such an individual falls into a bad memory. Sometimes they fall into a good memory. If they fall into a good memory, then they feel at ease and their caretaker feels at ease. But we see that 
the mind falls into a, a bad memory, if the mindfulness and wisdom is only a little bit, then there is a case of the, the wife saying to the husband, oh, why are you talking about this? Why are you remembering this? And what I would say is that this individual, they don't want to be remembering that because all beings want happiness. No one wants suffering. But this old memory, this old perception, it arises uh, based on the brain. This uh, individual didn't think that they want to remember this. They didn't try to remember that bad memory. But the mindfulness and wisdom was weak. And so the defilements were able to arise in the mind there and suffering arose right there. So one's not able to fix that type of situation. So therefore, we must take care of ourselves first, must look after the mind first. When these sense impressions arise, we practice to let go of them. If these bad moods or bad memories arise, then we know them. It's like when we eat meat, like fish or pork, there's these hard bones in there. For instance, when we eat pork, the pork bone, we can't chew on it. It's too hard. And so we don't uh, eat it. And so these moods are just like this. We just throw them away. We don't consume them. And our Blajan Cha gave this teaching, which is very deep. And so sometimes we feel annoyed or bothered. We don't want to experience that. Because as Dhamma practitioners, practitioners know about demerit and unwholesomeness. And they know that thinking in that way is a type of demerit. And so they want to be very careful about this. The mind doesn't want to think like this, but it still arises all the same. And so when the mind doesn't want those thoughts to arise, that's just another type of craving right there. That's vibhava tanha, a craving not to have, not to be, not to experience not to experience this type of thought or memory because we only want to have good thoughts and good mental formations. Is this possible to only have uh, good thoughts and good uh, objects of mind? What level do we need to be at? One needs to be at the level of an anagami, a non-returner, to only have wholesome objects of mind. This is a mind that has samadhi, that doesn't have uh, bad thoughts or bad objects in, in the mind. One is able to control the mind at this level. The mind may have unwholesome or unpleasant moods there, but the mind doesn't cling to them at this stage. It's like water and oil that don't mix together. The mind is separate from the moods. But in the beginning, we're not able to separate the mind from the moods and sense impressions. We can't do it. And so we have to experience wholesome states and unwholesome states. We only want to have wholesome states like generosity, uh, virtue, loving kindness, compassion, mindfulness, wisdom. We don't want to have ill will. We don't want to have sleepiness or restlessness or doubt, any of the hindrances. But this is a wish that's too lofty. We're able to do it if our mindfulness and wisdom, our samadhi and virtue 
is well established enough. But in the, in the beginning, it's normal that we're not able to achieve that wish. The level of the mind isn't to that point. So we have to experience these various types of moods and sense impressions. The mood or sense impression arises, we don't like it, we don't want it. The mind uh, thinks and fears unwholesome states. So then we think again. We think that, well, when we practice uh, these unwholesome states or moods, they uh, degrade and disappear by themselves. In the beginning, it's an obstacle to peace and collectedness, what we call kile samara, or the obstacle of defilement, the mara of defilement, like these five hindrances of sensual desire, ill will, restlessness, uh, sleepiness, and skeptical doubt, mental proliferation. These are obstacles that stop the mind from gathering into peace. So we keep practicing like this, keep fighting with the five hindrances. And these five hindrances prevent the mind from gathering in samadhi, prevent the mind from becoming peaceful. This is the case for monastics and laity, it's the same. These five hindrances are that which cover over, mix with the mind, become an obstacle for us. Because we want to see the Dhamma, we want to see Nibbana. We want to meet with a new friend. Then these old friends of ours come along. They say, oh, you want to go to Nibbana? Why don't you stay with me? That would be better. I am the five hindrances, sensual craving, ill will, restlessness, sleepiness, and doubt. We've been friends together for a very long time. Why are you trying to go elsewhere? You shouldn't stay with me. So this is what these old friends say. But the mind sees that this is suffering and sees with wisdom. And that, so therefore one arouses effort and perseverance to give rise to wisdom to abandon these unwholesome states and unwholesome moods, to practice samadhi, to bring about peace and collectedness. To use wisdom to contemplate to bring about peace. And in the end, samadhi is able to arise. When samadhi arises, we feel rapture and fullness in the heart. We start to see clearly that, oh, there is a happiness like this that is possible. Another type of happiness that one hasn't experienced before. Or perhaps one's experienced it for only a very short amount of time. Just like when I was a child, a young student, we would chant a tradi traditional melodious chant at school together, all the students. And we were praising the fully self-awakened Buddha with this chant. I felt great rapture and happiness, and fullness in my heart. All my hairs throughout the whole body stood on end. And I thought, what is this? I didn't know what it was, but I knew that I felt happy. It's something we did on every Lunar Observance Day at school. And I asked my friends about it, and they didn't have the same experience. But it's something I still remember well to this day. It was the mind 
uh, going towards the Dhamma, recollecting the qualities of the fully self-awakened Buddha, the mind going to Buddha Nusati. So this is an old merit, uh, parami and merit from the past. Just like all of you, you all have merit that you've made in the past that have brought you to be interested in the Dhamma, to listen to the Dhamma, to practice on this retreat, to give rise to the light of Dhamma in the mind, to give rise to happiness, just like the great teachers teach that these qualities of samadhi and mindfulness are important, that we practice to abandon the five hindrances to give rise to wisdom. And if we're able to keep these under control, these hindrances under control, the mind is able to enter the absorption states, the jhanas, to give rise to a Brahma God state. Because we want samadhi, and then to give rise to right samadhi, then we contemplate as well in order to see the Dhamma. Just like the Panchavagya, the group of five ascetics, in not very many days, they were able to realize our hunship. And in 14 days, we recollect the anniversary of the Buddha's first teaching when the Buddha taught at the Deer Park at Varanasi. And so these five ascetics, their samadhi was full. They were able to suppress the kilesas already so that the kilesas weren't arising. But if they didn't have that samadhi, then the kilesas would arise again, the defilements would arise again. And so they realized that that wasn't the way to freedom from suffering. Because if the samadhi wasn't there to control the five hindrances, then the defilements would arise right there. So they knew this wasn't the way. And they wanted to seek the way to the end of suffering, but they didn't meet with it. So they needed the fully self-awakened Buddha to come teach them that everything that is of the nature to arise is of the nature to cease. And hearing this teaching, they were able to see and know the Dhamma, with Venerable Anyakandanya first seeing the Dhamma, followed by Wapa, Mahanama, Asaji, and Bhadiya. They were all able to see the Dhamma. But then it was during the Anattalakana Sutta, the teaching on Anatta, the Buddha's second discourse, that they were all able to realize full awakening that the Buddha taught that which is very sweet-sounding, melodious, and pleasing to hear. He taught the five ascetics is material form, is it stable or unstable? They answered, it's unstable, Lord Buddha, because they saw that every breath must come in and out, and that it's something that's not stable, not permanent. Then the Buddha asked further, well, that which is unstable and impermanent is that suffering or happiness? And they answered, it's suffering. And this quality of dukkha, suffering, means that it can't be sustained. It truly is suffering, truly unsustainable. It can't last. And so we see, well, is this body, is it suffering or happiness? We see it's of the nature to get sick, to get a cold or a flu, to get hungry. Without water, it gets thirsty. 
it, it needs to get enough rest. Without enough rest, it doesn't feel well. It gets hot, it gets cold, various feelings arise. These are all types of suffering. And then if the immune system uh, goes down, then we get sick again. Because these bacteria and virus, they're already here in the body. So when the immune system is weak, illnesses arise. And we need to go seek out a doctor, seek out medicines to cure the illness. So we see that material form is suffering. When it degrades and falls apart, then we truly see the suffering in the body. But one who has wisdom is able to see that suffering in the present, to see that it's dukkha here and now, and contemplates like this, that rupa, material form, is suffering. So given this, should you cling to it? The Buddha asked, should you cling to it as self? Should you take it as self? You can't uh, control it. And so it's not should not be taken as self. One should not cling to it as self. Then the Buddha asked further about feeling, about perception, about mental formations, about sense consciousness. Are they permanent or impermanent? Suffering or happiness? Should they be taken as self? And the five ascetics contemplated following this teaching, the Natalakana Sutta, and they contemplated vijnana, sense consciousness, to know it clearly. And they were able to all realize full awakening. But in terms of sense consciousness, contemplating vijnana, we see that when the eye sees a form, we feel that it's we who are seeing, that the feeling is self. But if we see seeing is just seeing, then we don't suffer. But if we think that the experience of seeing is self, then that's a cause for suffering to arise. But if we look at this and investigate it, we see that if there is a functioning physical eye organ, there is illumination, there's the intent to see, there's a material form, then there's the experience of seeing, but if there's no eye, or the eye has some kind of problem, or there's nerve damage, then we don't see. But even that experience of not seeing, we still think of that as self, that it's we who are not seeing, or that it's we who are seeing. Either way, the mind takes it as self. But in truth, this sense consciousness, its nature is to arise and cease. It arises, stays for a little while, and ceases. That's its nature. So seeing is just seeing, hearing is just hearing. When we understand it this way, we don't suffer. But we take sense consciousness to be self. We take material form and mentality to be self. It's I who sees. This is the cause for suffering to arise. So we practice to cultivate right view, right intention, all the factors of the Noble Eightfold Path, right mindfulness, right samadhi, practice to have wisdom, right view, virtue. However much we have the Noble Eightfold Path, that's how much we're able to see material form and mentality as not-self. 
or however much we see not self, that's how much we don't suffer. Suffering doesn't arise. So therefore we have to set our hearts on this practice of mental cultivation to cultivate mindfulness, to give rise to clear knowing, to see clearly the experience of sight, sound, taste, smell, touch, and mental objects are not self. We have to keep teaching the mind that it's not self. Sometimes we tell the mind this and the mind doesn't listen. The mind just gives rise to clinging. And so when this is the case, the mind doesn't listen. We come back to meditate again, to use whatever method we're proficient in to give rise to the peace of samadhi. Whether it's contemplation or shamatha objects, this is the heart of the practice. And so we practice to be able to do this, just like we read, or just like we've read in the suttas already, the practice of generosity, virtue, and meditation. We practice to have effort in this, to cultivate mindfulness, samadhi, and wisdom, to give rise to this clear, all-around knowing of conditioned formations. Just like Venerable Ajahn Chah taught, to put down the books first, to keep a watch over the mind, to give rise to clear seeing. Because when we keep a watch over the mind like this, then we're able to truly understand the practice, to understand it more clearly. In the beginning, we may not feel we can do this, or we're not able to do this, but we just keep practicing, keep walking this path to give rise to strength and energy in the mind, to give rise to clear knowing. So may all of you, all monastics, all laity, may you set your hearts on this practice. This is the fourth day of our retreat together, whether online or on site. So may all of you set your heart on this practice. And so upcoming we'll have the translation into English. We can recollect that in the time of the Buddha, the Buddha spoke the Pali language. That was what was understandable to people. But now it's not just the Thai language that people understand because the Dhamma has spread much wider around the world. And so we use English as well as a kind of middle ground. And then in the future, it's possible that another language will be the common language that we'll use. Wherever people have a lot of faith, we may use that language. So may all of you set your hearts on learning the Dhamma together. May you grow in the Dhamma and grow in blessings. <laughs>